This is Drafting the Past, a show all about how we write history. And I'm your host, Kay Carpenter. This episode features Dr. Samantha Muka, whose enthusiasm for her work is pretty much guaranteed to improve your day. Thank you for having me. Sam's first book is Oceans Under Glass, Tankcraft and the Sciences of the Sea, in which she investigates how a community of aquarium users have created and shared knowledge about how to take care of marine life in captivity. Sam is an assistant professor at the Stevens Institute of Technology, and she is also the author of numerous articles and book chapters about the history of marine science, including essays in Slate and The Atlantic. We talked about how her enthusiasm translates into her writing voice, keeping track of non-traditional sources, and what Sam has in common with a horse. You'll just have to listen to know what that's about. I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Dr. Samantha Muka. I started out when I went to undergrad, which I'm going to start with my trajectory here just because it it is important to me. I was a literature major and I was really a literature major because when I went to college, I was a first generation student and I was like, that's the skill I have, right? Like I'm a really good reader. (laughs) I was especially good for a Floridian, right? We're not (laughs) known for our uh, literacy, but I think you learn to write in this highly like flowery way. And then someone comes in and they just say, like, chop it all to death. And so when I got to graduate school, I went, my first degree in graduate school is in history and philosophy of science. And so I then learned to write like a philosopher, which is brutal, right? The first time I got a philosophy paper back, I was like, are you telling me I can't use a single adverb like ever? Um, And they were like, yeah, just like, you got to write what you mean, I'm married to a philosopher and sometimes in the middle of an argument, he'll say, I don't think you mean that. And he means it in a very kind of like <laughs> philosophical way. And so when I, I entered my dissertation phase, I was really quite torn about what type of writer I wanted to be. And I took a class actually with Stephanie McCurry, who is a American historian. And she said, you know, first of all, she scares the daylights out of me. I'm sure I can say that on a podcast to be fun. She's like the scariest person to sit in a classroom with. I, I respect her so much. Um, and she said, you know, you go to graduate school to learn how to sound more like yourself, right? Like you just go to graduate school to learn to write like you yourself. So we break you down and then you at some point figure out what your voice sounds like. And so when I transitioned into my dissertation and then eventually into my book writing, I started to kind of think about what I wanted to sound like. And it was a little bit more conversational than maybe other historians might like sometimes. We're trained at Penn as historians and sociologists. And so sociologists have a tendency to write from the first person a little bit more. They're a little bit more conversational and they place themselves in the story. And while I was, you know, pitching my book, people would be like, I don't really know what you're going for here. (laughs) Like, this is a weird sort of writing. And I knew that it made pitching the book a little bit uncomfortable because everything sounded a little muddled, like, what am I trying to do here? And so it was in the process of writing the book that I think I found my voice, which is somewhere between really kind of pedantic historian and hyper party girl sociologist. Like, I smashed them together into, like, really excited historian. And I started to, like, I would do interviews with with like the newspaper or people who had read my writing. And instead of calling me a historian, they would call me an aquarium enthusiast. 
And I was like, oh, that's a problem. But I guess like I come across as extremely enthusiastic. And I've really, I've tried to tone that down. But the truth is, is like, I, I, that is my voice. And so in some sense, I, I think that my writing voice has developed to be very similar to my speaking voice. And Penelope Hardy, who reviewed my book, she like wrote to me and she was like, God, it's just like listening to you out loud. And I was like, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I think it's the thing that I felt that I was really chasing when I started writing was that very particular voice. And so I'm glad uh, at least that people think that that my writing matches my speaking in that sense. So (laughs) it's taken a long time to get there. You mentioned just before this that this book isn't your dissertation. Why did you decide to go a different direction? My dissertation was so boring. (laughs) <laughs> it's actually, I can't, <laughs> it's like, people are like, you should publish that. And I was like, I don't even want to read it again. Like that's, um, no, I, when I started my dissertation, I, I used to be a historian of medicine. When I got into graduate school, I came in as a historian of public health, actually religion and syphilis was my specialty. And then I transitioned. I got really interested in this group of people who, who learn about the ocean. And I thought that I would write a dissertation on how it formed. And so using kind of his, historical methods, like my dissertation was very history of biology. I I thought space, like laboratory space was the thing that was really important. You know, there are lots of great things about writing a dissertation. Uh, but when I got to the end of my dissertation, which I do like, and I, I, I loved it, I still hadn't answered my question. And my question was kind of like, why is marine biology so different than other like, why is it not transitioning into this hyper-professional stage that we see with, like, really firm boundaries, like physics and other things like that? Why is it maintained in this, like, porous boundaries? And I hadn't answered that question. And so everywhere I went when I worked on my dissertation, the archives were usually in an aquarium or near it. And so I would just go scoop up everything. Um, and I was lucky enough to have a... a, a pre-doc at the Smithsonian. And so they have all of these archives from other things. And so when I went back to really look, what I found is that I I thought it was the tanks that were creating this structure. And so I just thought like, I would rather write about the thing which I find my kind of mobilizing question, instead of pursuing a book that would, yeah, probably be quicker and better for my professional trajectory in some ways. And I don't know if that's true or not, right? I'm not, I'm certainly not the only person that has not published their dissertation first. And actually one of my advisors, Fritz Davis, published his second project before his dissertation. And so it wasn't quick and it wasn't easy, but I think that the fact that I was so interested in the question made it really just like something I wanted to do badly. And so that's kind of how I got to, I had all the documents I really didn't have to do a lot of other research. And there are like bits and pieces, right? Because most marine laboratories had public aquariums. And so a lot of that was just kind of naturally built in. So it was like a perfect second project, but first book. Well, let's talk practically about how you write. So when and where do you like to do your writing? I'm, I'm hope, hopefully, maybe I'm the only person that's ever said this. So when I started writing my book. I, I finished my dissertation and um, my husband had just gotten a, a tenure track position in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. I was still teaching in Philadelphia. So I was taking 
a commuter bus two hours and 40 minutes south <laughs> every other day. Uh, so I was on that bus for a little over five hours. And that would be if everything was on time, which never has never happened. I wrote the majority of the first draft of my book on a bus. And I got really used to doing that. There was no internet. There was you know, nothing to do. So I would load everything onto my computer and I would just write, you know, with all of my archives uh, digitally put on the computer. And then I still commute. So I commute by New Jersey Transit. It is a dream. Two hours. So beginning of the line to the end of the line. And uh, and so I write for, you know, at, from two to four hours. When I was doing my book, I would do edits. There is something very useful about that. I find it very difficult to write anywhere. I can't write in coffee shops. I cannot write in open spaces. I really can't write in a space uh, that has a high ceiling, which is a weird thing. So if I'm in, I need like a super low ceiling. And also I'll often put like a, a hoodie on. So I often say I'm like a horse. <laughs> I have to like block out all outside information and I'll just and for some reason the train does that for me there are a billion people they're all over but if I can put in headphones and I have a hoodie on I'll just write the whole time and so that's what I got used to doing during the pandemic it was really hard for me to not be able to go on public transportation and write it was so hard I can edit pretty much anywhere but I can only like write a new thing in a very particular environment and I have to be it has to be very small yeah I this is what you get from being on a commuter bus. And I also, I feel so bad for the drivers of that bus because I have really bad motion sickness and it's caused by reading. So I'd sit like right next to them and just type for like, <laughs> they were like, oh God, this one's got to leave me alone. And I type really loudly because I learned to type on a typewriter. So, you know, I, I spare a thought occasionally these poor bus drivers who I annoyed for like four years on the Martz bus from Wilkes-Barre to Philadelphia every other day. I have a hunch that they have endured far worse than that. Oh, <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> Sometimes when you listen to them, they'll tell old stories. And I'm like, oh, gosh, this is a problem. <laughs> this is, it's, a, it's an issue. Talk to me about how you organize then. You, you mentioned that you have your sources digitally as you're writing. How do you like to put all that together? I really have to write in subsections and they have to be very like bounded. So my writing is, is super chunky. I used to get super stressed about this. Like you read some writers and they're just beautiful long form, like their chapters just flow together and it's this really beautiful narrative. And that is not how I write. <laughs> and it took me a long time to, to figure out that part of that is how I'm like mentally organizing the writing and part of that is just not my voice. The organization is such that that usually I have an enormous amount of documents. When I started trying to put them together, I did a couple of things that I found really, really important. And one of them was to build databases that were searchable. It takes a really long time. And I was really lucky when I lived in DC for my pre-doc. My husband lived in Utah because he had a, a postdoc there. And so I was all alone in a basement. I didn't know anyone in DC. And so I spent all that time creating these like databases at night. And basically, I made all of the letters, all of the images, and actually all 50 years of the first science articles searchable 
on on a database. And then that really helps when I'm writing to to be like, oh, I, I think I remember this like article from science. And then to just quickly kind of be able to put in quotes, right? Because I have them all loaded on there. I'm going to say like the worst thing ever out loud, which is that I don't do my citations until the end. Every time I think, oh gosh, I really should do those citations during, but it really ruins the rote, like the flow of writing for me. And so I have a tendency to want to just put in kind of a shortened citation and then go back and do it. And then most of the time when I'm doing big chunks of writing, it is like a week at a time. So I will use part of that time to, because I have these very clear kind of demarcated times for writing. I'm going to get on the train at this moment, right? You know, I can spend a couple of days saying, what am I going to write? Kind of outlining it, pulling up any archives that I might need on my computer, and then just have them set for when I, I sit down to do that. So, you know, sometimes you can write super quickly if the subsection, you know, lends itself. And and sometimes like it's weeks and weeks for like, you know, a couple hundred words and you feel really stupid about it. And I, and, you know, I have tried to rely maybe less on my digitized archives than I used to. And part of that is because some of my field work got erased. And I was just like terrified. So now I keep a lot of notebooks too, which I didn't previously, but you know, the shock of the old, the notebook still works. So I, I take those a lot and will use them. And I also take long form kind of notes on paper when I'm reading so that the quotes that I think are really useful or the pieces, the chunky pieces that I'm going to stick into the writing are already there. And I'm kind of just like, you know, putting them back into the piece that I'm doing. Is there a database software that you use? Oh, no, I built it out of an Excel spreadsheet. It was dumb. I am not good with computers. I um, I told another scholar I did this and they were like, oh, that's a choice. That is a thing you did. <laughs> like, I'm not good with computers, but I, I, it was a thing that I first started to do when I went into archives that didn't have the ability to take pictures. So the first archive that I worked in was the APS. And they don't let you take pictures. And I'm the cheapest person in the whole world. And so I was like, forget it. I'll just sit here and I'll write everything out. I don't even care what you want from me. And so I started to, to like build these super large Excel sheets. And I have one for archives, one just specifically for letters, and one for a, a piece that I use all the time. The New York Aquarium's director's logbooks are really a huge chunk of my work, not necessarily in the book, but in other things that I use. And so I cataloged them all so that I would be able to, to, to look at them later. And then, of course, the journals. So the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries and Science. And so I just cataloged every single one of them for the time period that I was looking at. Um, and they've come in really handy. But like, that's the type of thing that like, you do either as you're a very early graduate student or you end up doing as a graduate student for a professor who can pay you to do it. But like at this point in my life, the thought of like doing something like that again is just, yeah, I'm, I, I would be, I would drive myself crazy, basically. Where in the research process do you like to start writing or do you feel ready to start writing? It really depends for me when I, it's so weird. It's so hard to look back and be like, what did I do that? Because once you have pieced it all together, uh, it ceases to exist as like 
as like parts anymore. There was just a certain extent where, you know, my advisor used to say, you just got to sit down and write something. So like do it, just sit down and write something. And so in my process, I think once I, I thought that I had somewhat of a timeline, I could go ahead and try to write something down, whether it was a, a chunk of that timeline. So there were two chapters in my book that that just came really easily. And ironically, they were the ones that needed, and it's not ironic at all, it like makes total sense. They were the ones that needed the most work to fit them into the book, which was the jellyfish, jellyfish tanks, uh, the chrysal tank chapter and the photography chapter. Both of those, the reason is because they they dovetail really nicely with my dissertation. They were the ones that I had studied with my dissertation. Like everyone knew that I had been working on jellyfish tanks for a really long time. And so I was prepared to sit down and write those. And I did really quickly. And then they were the ones that I spent the most work on at the end trying to fix. Right. So they both helped me think about what I had been, you know, why I thought this was an important thing, kind of put it down on paper. And then, and then also to realize that I didn't have everything. The ones that I feel the least comfortable writing and always the things that I feel the least comfortable writing are probably anything that has to do with kind of current practice. So I, I'm still pretty tentative about dealing with live people, even though I do all the time. And so I always want to make sure that they're like, that I've got it right. And that makes me so nervous. I, maybe I just feel I feel more concrete in historical methods and more comfortable. And so I'm much more comfortable writing a kind of history of something. But when I start to get to the recent history, I get nervous. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about that, just because I know that you used a wide variety of sources for this book. And because it deals so much with enthusiast practitioners you were often dealing with archives that weren't in like traditional archive spaces or trying to assemble them. How did you bring all those things together? How did you think about collecting material? Yeah, it's super interesting because when I started working on this piece, I really didn't know how I was going to get at the hobbyists. I mean, I knew that they existed. And what happened was I got a postdoc at the Smithsonian. And part of the postdoc was to go to Florida and work with a tank there to watch people do it or whatever. And I ended up when I was at in DC doing all this archival work, I I ended up just asking around like I was talking to people and I said, you know, I think that I need to talk to like real people about the stuff that they're doing and I I ended up like basically learning that once you talk to one person in the any community, like hobbyist community, uh, the public aquarium community, they'll just pass you on to the next person, right? Um, there are not written documents for the hobbyist community. Like there are some, but they don't get archived. They get, you know, they, they're they like people collecting National Geographic's in their basement, right? And so anytime I get any grant money, I'll be like, I bought all these magazines. It's so exciting. And people are like, oh, that is not, <laughs> that's not what we meant by research materials. And I was like, now I have them forever, right? So the biggest way that people share information in my communities is through word of mouth. And so when I went to go do interviews with them, it's a little different than oral histories because I'm not sitting down and like asking them their history. And sometimes I'm trying to follow like both what they're doing and where they learned to do it. And the great thing about the people that I work with is, is like I said, they'll just pass you on to the next person, right? You could 
think you're going to do a 30 minute interview for the day and you end up doing like six hour long interviews because someone says like, why don't you just go down to that office and ask them about when they studied with this person and like how they learned. And why don't you just like look at all my books while you're here, right? So you can. Um, and so all of that stuff is is interesting. Knowing how to fit it together in some sense was about figuring out what I thought was like the center of every story, the center of the network. And most of the time that would be what I thought was like a pivotal historical moment, right? So in some chapters, there's like three, right? So the jellyfish chapter, there's there's like three historical moments that are pivotal. And and in the like breeding chapter, it's like almost just like five years ago, the pivotal. <laughs> I was like, and so, you know, trying to to anchor things historically is what helps there. And then I think giving yourself a lot of ability to know that you're never going to you can't name everyone. Like sometimes I like the work that I do is slippery because you also have to know that like when you're asking people about very recent history, it's so colored by so many different things. What they think the history is, like how they're building their own perceptions of that history, you know, who they're fighting with, who they've had fights with in the past, etc. And then there's like these geographical histories. Obviously, a lot of this work was done in the American system. It always ends up that way. And it's very hard not to most of the time, um, just because that's where I'm stationed. And so, you know, I had to like decide where to cut things off and then give myself like this, the, the kind of grace to do that. Right. Like you can't. This is the nature of their field, their work. And so uh, I just have to kind of get over myself, right? There are billions of people who are doing billions of things with tanks. I think like that's awesome. And I'm, I'm trying to like emphasize that these are the people that I think are historically kind of at those epicenters when the work changes. So I kind of shoved them together in a weird, in a weird way. And most of that was just through a general feel. So I had the historical timelines. And then when I was in the field, most of the time what I was listening for was comfort, not like confirmation that I was right, but it was very rare for someone to say something that proved me wrong. And so after I'd been in the field long enough, I started to feel more confident that putting that historical timeline together was the right way to put it together. Right. And I would have these like hour long conversations with people. And they would say like, oh, yeah, like, I remember that now. Like, this is the thing. So I would start to kind of test my timeline with this community and see how confident I felt in the story that I was telling. There's a lot of I talk about in the book that tank work is about craft work and kind of this feedback mechanism. But writing in that particular way, it has like a real feedback, too. Now that I've moved on to another project. I'm more confident in having these conversations with public aquarists and hobbyists. And it makes me feel even more confident because like they are confirming to me this, this thing, which I know now. And I often say like, Oh, I know you history. I know it now. Um, and it's not perfect. There's like obviously uh, things, but I, I think when you work so closely with a community, you know, you're tentative about being too engulfed by them. 
But like at the same time, that's part of the writing process is to recognize that you're like writing for this community and within it in a very particular way. This is a a deeply selfish question because I'm also working on a project that deals a lot with a sort of enthusiast community uh, up to the present. So I may delete this, but it might be useful for others too, which is that in my research, I run into a problem where so much of the communication of this community took place in the especially in the 90s and early 2000s on like message boards and forums that no longer exist or that at least I don't have access to. Did you encounter this? And and how did you deal with that gap? What's really beautiful about the hobbyist community, I mean, like they're literally my favorite group, (laughs) is that they they probably just like your group as well. the, The internet was perfect for that. Like they loved it. Okay. They there are some message boards that are missing, but in my particular group and community, there is a con- like a continuance of people. And what's more interesting about my people is no matter how much information that you can give someone online, there really is is touch memory. And so someone will just say, "Well, just come to my come to my lab or like come to my house," and that's the way they have a tendency to communicate. It's a it's interestingly easier to do those tracings because those people leave kind of ripples in in that particular way. So as I started to do interviews, people would just say the same names over and over again. And there are some people I just can't find, right? Because of that. There's a guy I just, you know, finished a paper yesterday. And every time I give this paper, people will be like, I want to know more about that person. And I was like, listen, I've tried to find them and I'm angry because I want to put their name in a paper. I want them to be historically kind of relevant. At the same time, they don't exist on paper anymore, right? Like it's this guy from Baltimore who invented the plastic bag to carry fish in, right? Oh my gosh. Like this is the most exciting thing (laughs) in the whole world. But he did everything offline and and, and not, you know, he's a guy, he's like a fish dealer in in Baltimore. It's not like people thought I'm going to save my dad's business dealings about fish bags, right? So in that case, it is very difficult. I started to run into this problem. Uh, one of the men that I work on, Walter A.D., is at the Smithsonian during the um, 80s and 90s. And he designs the the oceans for Biosphere 2. And the whole community, it's really hard to get into those records if you're going into the Biosphere 2 records. But Walter A.D.'s records are available because they're publicly available. And they were all on well, like Netscape. And the way that they printed them out is like original email response response. I mean, like it's like 20,000 pages of someone being like, and then there's a point where they start talking about how amazing Internet Explorer is and they're all going to switch. And I was like, oh, this is like <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> and so I realized, you know, that was a hard thing. I have all those archives. I haven't done anything with them because it's such a disaster, really. But luckily, my fish community people, they are so interested in kind of personal communication that they, during COVID, immediately switched to Zoom. And they would include me because I've been kind of creeping them on Facebook for a really long time. And so I ended up doing, you know, hours and hours of observation of these meetings that they were having, they have to talk face to face. But unlike other groups that like, you know, that that data is missing. Again, for me, because most of their stuff is 
verbal and kind of face to face. I just have to admit sometimes it's only only so much I can do. Like I have to go by what they are telling me or what they have put in print. And I do love the internet. Like it's fantastic, but things disappear. There's a lot of things, you know, when I was writing my book and that I would cite that that now don't exist, right? That were there just 12 years ago. And so, I mean, one thing I would say is if if it exists at all to archive it. Uh and I've talked to other scholars about this. You know, what do we do with our own personal archives, right? I have thousands of screenshots of things that don't exist anymore. And so uh, those are kind of the questions for future historians in some sense, right? Like, do I, you know, is it just ephemeral, you know, or or useless? And those are like hard questions to answer. But I would say just try to grab it. Grab everything. And, and again, like extend yourself the grace of knowing that you can't know everything. That's That's what the training is for, right? To like make like a good guess. And that's why I said like, and then you go into the community and you're like, I made this good guess. Does that sound right to you? And you don't say it in that way, but like uh, you have these conversations and they'll be like, oh, you know, it becomes a seamless way that you are getting this feedback that you're not like making stuff up. Right. And that's really, the community is useful to me, not just because they are historically useful to me, but also because they're a good sounding board for the things so that I know that I'm not off track. I asked Sam to read a passage from Oceans Under Glass so that we could talk more concretely about how her approach works out on the page. Here's Dr. Samantha Muka reading from Chapter 1 of Oceans Under Glass, Tankcraft and the Sciences of the Seas. Mary Akers. You probably don't recognize the name, but her story is amazing. Akers is a crab enthusiast and one of only five people worldwide who've managed to breed land hermit crabs. Megalopa, transitioning them from eggs into water-dwelling juveniles and back onto land to live as mature hermit crabs. This is the type of accomplishment that I mention at parties and wait for people to get excited. She closed the cycle on hermit crabs. Cool, huh? The blank stares don't deter my excitement and usually lead me to offer more information. Akers isn't an academic biologist. In fact, it is reported that she struggled in freshman biology decided that science wasn't for her, and became a pottery artist. She returned to breeding crabs out of curiosity and obsession after her children left for college. She has an Etsy store where she sells, quote, products for the well-fed, fashionable hermit crab, including homemade ceramic pool ramps, food dishes, and dried mealworms and other foodstuffs for hermit crabs. Mary Akers is so awesome, right? (laughs) Okay, I love this opening uh, for a bunch of reasons. For one, it surprised me. And then two, you know, I already love you as a writer reading it. I love Mary Akers having read it. And I love how much your enthusiasm for this project just comes through immediately. I was curious, and maybe having talked to you, maybe the answer is just this is who you are. But how do you maintain that kind of enthusiasm through a long project? Um, I mean, I think part of it is just the people I work on, right? And and part of that, I I think, is... I was really trained in a really super interdisciplinary way. There are no boundaries to the idea that like, you have to write this way, you have to do this. Um, And I think that helps with long-term enthusiasm because you don't feel as if you're transgressing anything by enjoying it in a different way. And so I chose this project 
because it was a project that I wanted to pursue, I thought it was important. And I think part of that is just so often, and I heard this a lot during COVID specifically, historians will say, I just don't know if this is important anymore, right? Or even academics in general, like it wasn't just historians, right? Like, is this esoteric thing, which I've dedicated my life to, and like, I can't even explain to my parents the importance of, is that it? And I think over time, my enthusiasm has grown partially because it feels that my field is is so incredibly important. It's not as important to historians of science. I mean, I think that that it's interesting. It raises really important questions. But climate and climate change and the kind of coastal infrastructural issues and coral farming and these things, they just continue to be more important every year, right? So I started writing about coral tanks and people weren't doing anything with them. I mean, it was pretty rare. By the time I was done, it felt like, you know, front page of the New York Times and all of these things. And so to me, that says like my work, while it might not be, you know, like the most serious thing in some ways, I mean, like, obviously I am very enthusiastic for a reason, is important. Like I value it and I value the people that I write about. And I think that they are awesome. Right. I think that they do truly amazing things, which is why I think some people call me an aquarium enthusiast (laughs) sometimes. I just, I can't, when you unblack box a system, you become, you know, privy to their secrets in this way that you get to be an enthusiast too. Right. I don't have to keep an aquarium. People always ask me if I keep an aquarium. And I said, no, because I get to like really. I can go to a public aquarium. I'm taking my Girl Scouts this coming week to sleep in a public aquarium. And that experience will be very different for me because to me, it's about like that, like I am appreciating your craft in such a gorgeous way. And maybe other historians of science get to do this, but on a, you know, it's great on a rarer thing. How many times do you find yourself like in an astronomy tower or like at a large, uh, you know, collider or something? But for me, You know, I can feel that enthusiasm at the mall when I go to the dentist, like when I look at the lobsters at the, the, you know, uh, grocery store. And so in some sense, it just feels like a secret that I get to share with like really cool people. And it feels like socially and important to the future to to kind of reconstruct these networks to make them visible so that we know how to get the work done. Right. Um, I was trained in history of medicine and in labor history. And while it doesn't always show in this work, those two fields are often very oriented towards usefulness, right? And like value in our world. Like we're here to, you know, show people how to navigate systems and how we got here. And so I think in some sense, like that's what I really want to bring to this kind of history of biology and history of technology is this enthusiasm for the people who are alive now and how history can like be valuable to them. But I am naturally just an enthusiastic person. (laughs) And I think that's, that's how I knew to like switch my, you know, to pursue this book because when I feel enthusiasm about something, I will continue to just, you know, chip away at it and I never get bored. I still love this project. I, I still am pursuing it in a certain way. Like I've kind of veered a bit. But most of that is just me doing what people have allowed me to do, which is to pursue things at my own pace and to trust like 
trust the training in some sense that like that you're not gonna just like say like kooky stuff even though sometimes it feels that way you're just like oh i'm just writing this i'm just writing that down there and so you know that's why i'm enthusiastic about it i think is that people just giving me the room to be enthusiastic right without being like you gotta write this thing like the way that i want you to and also like mary acres she she wrote you know thousands and thousands of blog posts she's so interesting and she as you like is enthusiastic she's a beautiful writer um she talks about these like hermit crabs as they crawl into the shore with their little naked hermit crab butts like it's so <laughs> cute how can you not be enthusiastic about <laughs> about naked hermit crabs like they're just there's something i don't know i find a lot of joy in the work so this the answer to this may also have to do with your sort of interdisciplinary background and some of the things you just talked about but part of the reason i like this opening so much is cuz it's it's very different than what a lot of historians do right it's we often start with an anecdote uh, to the point that it, it has become a subject of mockery. <laughs> but here, what you start with someone contemporary. You know, I can go read her blog and check out her Etsy shop right now. How, how did you think about and decide on the narrative structure for this book? I think that that's a really hard question. <laughs> it's really difficult. I got a lot of writing advice. And when I started the book, it was maybe a little bit more history of biology. And then I I went to uh, Woods Hole a couple of times with Jane Meinshine and her group. Um, and Jane specifically is just really focused on how we as historians can be helpful, how we can be thoughtful about, about the audience that we're looking to write for, right? Be that scientists or other historians or like, who did I want to write for? Right. And so in some sense, I started to structure the book more towards hobbyists and, and public aquarists and maybe a little bit further from historians. I, I, I don't think there's anything out that historians won't read. Right. Because we've been trained to read some pretty long form stuff. <laughs> like, so like you don't have you don't have to convince us to read it. Right. We'll sit here and we will read it. And so, you know, with the advice of of Jane and and other people, like their advice was was largely find your hook, find the thing that makes you feel useful. And the thing that made me feel like things mattered is that these historical narratives had a a continuance, right? And so for each chapter I started with a first person right? And most of that is from the present day. And, and a lot of that is just to be like, look, I'm going to tell you some really boring stuff in the middle. And a lot of it might be really technical too. I mean, like there are chunks of my chapter that are just about filtration. I mean, like, and if you never thought that you cared about the difference in tank filtration, think again, because it's interesting, right? But it's probably not. But I want you to know going into it, into each chapter, that like, there's a reason you should care. Um, and that reason is is up front, right? And it's because these people are still doing this work. And most of this stuff is still a mystery, which I think is kind of really beautiful. You know, when I give talks to students or about my writing, I think that there's a point where you don't want to be teleological. And I've been yelled about like at about this before where people are like, oh, you're too like focused on getting this, you know, historical narrative perfect. And so maybe I felt also that those 
introductions were a way of me saying like, we still don't know. We're still working on this stuff. And I think that that is probably a kind of really viable way to do that. But in the long run, uh, it was just my writing style. (laughs) I think in some sense, like I just, and I was so, I was happy that people let me keep that in there. There were kookier anecdotes that I, I had to take out, but like, yeah, I mean, people, when living people invite you into your, into their homes or into their lives, you know, I spent a lot of time, like I said, like, you know, watching, you know, three hour long, like meetings and conferences on, you know, Zoom for, for like two years. I think that that demands a little bit of enthusiasm and respect. And so, you know, to like center people's current stories seems important to me. Okay, I want to shift gears here a little bit and talk about your own sources of encouragement and inspiration as a writer. I saw on Twitter recently that you're you're part of a writing group, and I'd love to hear how people's writing groups work. So could you tell me about yours and how it's been helpful? You know, I wasn't part of a writing group for a long time, and now I am. And they're a bunch of goofballs. I think they're meeting right now. So it is a group of five. Let's see here. Yeah, I, I think there's five of us. And we're all kind of different places in our career. We spend an enormous amount of time trying to figure out what our name is supposed to be so that we <laughs> can cite each other. We have some kooky ones. But, you know, it's interesting. I've been in in some writing groups previously. So I'm part of two. One is the Consortium uh, for the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine's Oceans group. And then this other one is is with a group of, I would say junior scholars, but I guess we're like mid-career scholars now, whether we want to be or not, maybe early to mid-career scholars. And so basically each week we give a piece of writing and then we just like grill each other about it, right? Yeah, everyone has totally different writing styles. They're different location what's really nice is we usually let people know like what we want right like what do I want to do with this piece and like what do I want you to tell me about it I feel like generationally this is something like you get online where you'd be like I'm just venting right now right like we could send someone like a grant proposal and we'd be like I'm just writing this right now actually don't want feedback like if you could just tell me I'm amazing that'd be really useful and eventually it all works out so I've I have had I guess four pieces either through the consortium and through the writing group. And sometimes I double them up. So like the oceans writing group is like all people who know about ocean stuff. Obviously they're amazing. They know what's out there. They'll, they'll tell me if I'm just missing something big. And the other writing group, which is like a history of biology and environmental history writing group, you know, they'll just tell me on the bigger scale, if the work seems relevant for everyone, right? If you want to be a hyper-specialist, be a hyper-specialist, and that's fantastic. But sometimes you want to show people that your subfield is just dramatically um, part of a, a kind of larger historiographical conversation. And so they that writing group is really helpful in that to that extent. But there are also just people that I've known. There, there comes a point, and uh, I'm sure, you know, this is not surprising to anyone, where you realize that you've been an academic for a really long time. Like you always feel young and you're like, we are so young. Right. And then you're like, Oh no, we're old. Like uh, we've been hanging out together for a really long time. There's so much joy in that, I think. So like writing groups are this moment where you realize that you're part of this like cohort, that you're part of this 
history of the history of science and that you you kind of understand each other in a kind of unspoken way. And none of us went to, I guess a few of them went to graduate school together. I didn't go to graduate school with any of these yokels. And so it's also interesting to see in that writing group and in any writing group that you're in, how training changes, how you approach things and the your methods and what you do. And so, you know, getting to be in a group of people that none of them were trained by the same people that I was trained with are really useful because they, they'll be like, I don't know what you're doing. Please stop. No one wants to hear about Latour as much as you think that they do. Like, please stop doing that. And I'm like, I don't know. Sociologists love it. (laughs) They're super into it. So it's, it's a useful group and I find it joyful. What's some of the best writing advice you've ever gotten? I mean, uh, Stephanie McCurry, she, she gave me two and like, not to me. She wasn't like, Hey Sam, listen up. She's like talking the one, which was to find your own voice. Right. And the other, she used to say some projects have a special quality of doneness. And um, I say that all the time. This paper has got a special quality of doneness to it. Like, it's not perfect. It's not nice. It just is done. And so I often think about that. You know, what would it take in this moment for this thing to be done for me? Right? Not that I'm tired of working on it, but like, what is the moment in which I think something is finished? And how do I get to that point? Whether it's mentally being able to live with (laughs) the flaws or knowing that someone else is going to tell me what's wrong, right? Like when you get out of graduate school and you don't have your advisor anymore, you need these writing groups. And part of that is just to figure out that quality of doneness for you. No one's going to tell you when to stop. And then Rob Kohler used to say, don't, don't waste your words. You only get a certain amount of time, like make it ridiculous. Swing for the fences is basically what he used to say. I'm not sure he would ever remember even saying that. But for me, it was a big moment because I thought like, you know, I could sit around and I could write small papers. And sometimes every every paper seems small, like four people are going to read it or whatever. But like, you'd be surprised how many people don't care that much. And so it's about what you think that you should be writing. Right. And like, I think with my writing style in my book, I really tried to follow the advice of like, you just do what is going to to accomplish the goal that you want to do, right? And hopefully, I mean, people will help you smooth it down and get rid of those rough edges, but like give them the thing that you want to give them, right? Don't lowball it just because like you, you know, think that people don't want to hear how you write or like that your topic is not great or whatever. So, you know, don't don't waste your time thinking all the time about what other people want. And I think that that was a really useful form of, of advice. And it doesn't always work out. People will be like, this is dumb. Like, no, no one likes this. <laughs> and I'll be like, oh, that was a real miss, right? And so, yeah, those are those are my favorite. I I tell my students all the time to have that special quality of doneness, right? Like, just get it done. Not everything's a masterpiece. <laughs> she said that she got that quote from Christine Stanstill, uh, who I think is her special quality of doneness is very high quality. <laughs> so I, I think about it a lot. Are there are there writers who you read for inspiration, people you look to? I mean, I, you know what? I So I am the um, Twitterer. I'm not, I, I think it's called social media editor is my title for um, historical studies and natural sciences. And so I, I read that back to back every, every volume. 
And I think that the way people write in that journal is just beautiful, right? I, I think it has a lot of enthusiasm. I love forums or any kind of special volume. So Osiris is really, it, it makes me happy. And partially it's just about seeing a bunch of people come together to just geek out on the thing that they thought was cool. So, so you know, this volume in, in historical studies was on archival problems. And the things that people say in it are so fascinating and like cool. I like it when people are talking just like out loud about things that usually we talk about, you know, at conferences and whatever. But in general, you know, I read just about anything. I read a lot of history of medicine because I, I teach an enormous amount of history of medicine. And I always come back to that field just because I think that there's such a coherent understanding of multiple actors and kind of value and finding agency in, in like those actors. And sometimes that's hard to do in science. We get really caught up in this like academic science and an institutional situatedness, right? So like you just forget that there's all this commercial science or like, you know, just people doing stuff in their basements and whatever, because it's hard to track down. And so I think I continue to learn so much from the methods. People who do like disability studies, you know, the, those scholars are just doing stuff that it, it just keeps pushing forward the kind of use of scholarship that, that we haven't had. So I have a tendency to read them, try to stay up to date because I'm not so integrated in that field anymore. And then, you know, I'm so attracted and attached to reading like apocalyptic literature, <laughs> like any kind of literature that I think it is like back to the future, right? Like telling these future historical narratives makes me think about my own craft and how I write it. You know, like Margaret Atwood has a, so much thoughtfulness about the way that she imagines history and the holes that that exist in it. I find that just gorgeous. And um, Lauren Groff, who writes kind of these historical narratives to the future, I think that you can see the impact of reading those particular things in the way that I write, right, which is this kind of like weird thing. So I read a lot of those. I don't read a lot of historical fiction because it makes me nervous. It feels like I'm working. <laughs> so mostly I read future historical fiction most of in in which most of the earth has been destroyed that would be what happens so all of those things make me think more about how i'm playing with my own craft and and kind of situating myself in the in the stories that i choose to tell before i let you go can i ask you what you're working on now oh yeah oh my god i'm so excited so at, during COVID, and I know I mentioned COVID a lot, but like for me, it was this really intense thing where I was finishing my book and like, you know, there's always a sense, what are you going to do next? So I was really trying to stick closer to home. I was like, God, like I had this huge project and it was multinational and like whatever. And then I was like, forget it. I will never study anything outside of New Jersey ever again. And so I decided to like shrink this project and I've been working on artificial reefs and coastal engineering in the like kind of New York bite, but all the way down the Atlantic coast. And so I've been slowly building a digital database of every artificial reef on the continental, like off the continental United States. I've been learning to scuba dive, which is very, <laughs> awesome. I'm very scared. 
Um, when I say that I need a small space to write, part of that is I'm very terrified of open spaces. And so the ocean is the most terrifying thing in the whole world. They had to give me a special mask so I cannot see around me again, like a horse. (laughs) But, um, yeah, it's super cool because basically the history of artificial reefs has gotten very exciting. There's a bunch of other people working on this stuff. Dolly Jorgensen's working on it. And, um, Jeremy Green in Baltimore is working on kind of medical waste and and like things we throw in the ocean. So there are all these people that are doing this work. And and my kind of take on it is looking at this kind of engineering schools and what they're doing at this time. They're developing what are kind of like really industrial forms of artificial reefs. And they're working with local governments to do it. So right off the coast of the United States, in New Jersey, New York are are these things which like no one knows exists and they're made out of like boats and old you know train cars and all of these things and they people might say oh we used to do that no we do it every day we are throwing things in there every day and we don't keep very good track you don't have to have a lot of legal permits and even now the kind of coastal engineering that we do that seems more natural is still very kind of commercial. It's still very focused on fisheries or kind of making sure rich people's houses don't get washed away in a hurricane, like those types of things. So I'm studying the history of what started out as the history of artificial reefs and has now morphed into the history of kind of like trash garbage studies and kind of how we, we, we use this uh, kind of trash to treasure type of thing when we throw things into the ocean. So it's still in really early form and it's like kind of all over the place. Uh, And I love that. So this summer I'll be archive hopping. Yeah, I'm super excited. And I hope, right, again, to do kind of participant work, but luckily closer to home. So Stevens, my university, they have a whole coastal engineering program. New Jersey in general, like Monmouth and Princeton, all of these places are, are kind of intricately involved. And so I'm super excited to kind of, my book was very wide open space, like geographically. And I'm super excited to just kind of think about Jersey, my adopted state, the state that I love the most. Well, that's awesome. I (laughs) I look forward to it. Dr. Sam Yuka, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. This is, this has been wonderful. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks to Dr. Samantha Muka for joining me for this episode of Drafting the Past. And as always, thanks to you for listening to our conversation. You can find show notes and a complete transcript at draftingthepast.com, where you can also find past episodes, merchandise for sale, and more. If you have a minute, I would love it if you could help support the show by telling a friend about it or leaving a review on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, remember that friends don't let friends write boring history.